perhaps the most famous river in the world, the Nile River has been a source of life for Egyptian civilization for thousands of years. It is the world's longest river, spanning more than 6,800 kilometers or 4,200 miles, and runs through 10 different countries. While it is so long, its drainage is a mere fraction of rivers such as the Amazon, Congo, and Danube. All of this water not draining out into the ocean flooded and irrigated the river's banks and provided sustenance for the people who lived near in ancient times. There were also widely known cultural beliefs about the Nile River, such as its personification as a god, explaining the Nile's power to give life in the otherwise desert climate of Egypt. And for its time, the Nile was also known as an extensive trade route and inspired plans for socio-political structures and settlements throughout Egypt. You want to hear more? Let's go for a journey down the Nile. Thanks for dropping by. My name is Ruby Prosser, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 2 of Now is Then, a podcast series exploring differences and similarities in perceptions of ancient Egypt over time. In this episode, called Journey Down the Nile, I will be talking about many aspects of Pharaonic, Ptolemaic, and modern Egypt that had built up as well as changed Western perceptions of the Nile River. We'll be learning some of these changed perceptions were created in part by ideas of globalization and ethnocentrism and contribute to damaging practices of commercialization and notions of Orientalism. This is a whole lot to hear right now, and I promise I will be explaining all of this, but that's for later. For our special interview guest, we're joined throughout the podcast social distancing style with Amir Shahat. Please, Amir, tell us a little bit about yourself. My name is Amr Shahat. I am a fourth-year PhD student in Egyptian archaeology. And my specialization is archaeobotany. So when I dig in uh, archaeological sites, I look for uh, food and plant remains. And I explore the history of culture and uh, cultural interactions through the lens of uh, their use of plants. How did they uh, use this kind of uh, plants uh, for their food system, their agriculture, uh, their medicine, their clothing, and uh, for their trade interactions. Great, there's so much more to hear, so stick around. So we've all heard the phrase, water is life. And for ancient Egyptian civilizations, the Nile River was the source of all things needed to survive. The Nile River first provided irreplaceable water, and then humans learned to control it for agriculture. With years of surpluses, this aspect of Egypt was a flourishing one. But farmers had to have technology to calculate ways to get the best crop yield. Let's start with the very basics, according to Nizar al-Sayyad, a professor and urbanist with interest in Islamic architecture and urban history. Water goes through natural processes, like precipitation. It can gather in a lake, glacier, and be released by rivers and streams into the ocean. The most natural form of water ancient Egyptians learned to control, of course, was the river that we call the Nile today. 
We can learn about the Nile's natural cycle in the terms of the ancient Egyptians in their agricultural calendar. The three seasons were named Akhet, Peret, and Shemu, or inundation, growing, and harvest. These parts had about four months each. First, Akhet, or inundation, was the four months' time in which the Nile's water levels rose up to extensively flood the soil on the banks of the river. This left farmland well-watered and very fertile for the next growing season. This sudden rise in the waters, though, created devastating floods, ruining the farmland and the previous harvest of crops, if not measured correctly. I'll talk a little more about Happy, the personification of the power behind these floods, when we talk about the Nile's cultural significance. Further, to combat this power, ancient Egyptians created a very, very advanced irrigation system. This system allowed for many canals to reach the innermost parts of land to water the crops. Systems like shadufs, which were long poles attached to a water bucket, allowed for farmers to easily allocate the river water to these canals. The next season is called Perret, when farmers plant multiple crops in the silt, including, but of course not limited to, barley, onions, wheat, and lettuce. Ancient Egypt also used tools such as the ox-drawn plow, hoes, and large baskets to plant after inundation. Breaking up the fertile soil after it had been inundated was important to actually make sure the seeds could be viable and sprout. After another four months of plowing the fields and harvesting, the final season of Shemu, or harvest, came along. A primary source shows us multiple storage records of distributions in the food surplus, suggesting ancient Egyptians were harvesting in surplus for many years. Because of this, people were able to make and store other artifacts, like textiles, also shown in the record. Ancient Egyptians celebrated the surplus and the season Shamu with a festival associated with the goddess Renenyatet. We know there were celebrations, but Amir, what did they celebrate? So there is a celebration of two important days. The harvest day um, in, uh, in March, and there is a day in January, around, I think, January 21st, when uh, after the flood is complete and when winter starts and the water is extremely cold, they consider that time the cleanest and the purest time for the Nile water. So they call it the day of Watas, means swimming, means the Nile is safe to swim in and drink from. Uh, they consider Christianity and Islam as the host religions and they altered actually uh, uh, they, they could continue some of the ancient Egyptian beliefs around the Nile, even under these time periods. Wow, it's crazy how the efficiency of their yield from the river has been celebrated for that long. The efficiency of the agricultural system also definitely proved itself through the surplus, and this suggests Egyptians also had extra materials to trade. According to El Sayed, there soon became development of reed and wooden rafts, which converted the Nile into a highway for trade, communication, and political integration. With further developments in technologies to farm and trade, there was successful handling of the Nile River in pharaonic times. Great! Think back to when we talked about inundation. 
and the power behind the flood to either give life or create destruction. Those are cultural beliefs about the Nile. At this point, let's introduce a little information about the religiosity of ancient Egyptians, or basically how religious the general population was. Barry Kemp, an archaeologist and Egyptologist, recognizes that many ancient Egyptians followed a quote-unquote popular religion, but that religion was also used in New Kingdom periods as a way to possibly boost personal relationships with the deities they prayed to. It was more of the nobles and elites that would practice the spells, rituals, and other prayers. Nonetheless, it's important to learn about what many people believed about the Nile River in Pharaonic times. Ancient Egyptians unified most gods with the characteristics of the central god Ra, or the king of gods. Because of this, the Nile River god Happy is depicted with many similarities to Ra, and lesser-known god Kenum, an earlier god of waterfalls. Another deity associated with the Nile is Renenutet, a powerful goddess in control of nourishment, fertility, and harvest. You can probably remember that she was celebrated at Shamu, the Harvest Festival. So, Amir, who was happy and how was his religious presence effective for the ruling class? In ancient Egypt, the embodiment of the Nile flood and the bounties and beauty that the Nile comes with um, it was, was embodied or in form of God happy. And we see that kings, when they focus on agriculture, especially in the Middle Kingdom, uh, after a recovery from a civil war, they started to uh, focus on irrigation system and development. So we found emphasis of God happy and uh, King Amnim had the third uh, to like celebrate this and present himself as uh, representative of God happy on earth. Uh, bringing bounty of the Nile, etc. He has a presentation of himself as happy bringing food and fowls and fish and plants to the Egyptians. And this statue is in the Egyptian Museum. Very, very impressive. Very impressive indeed. Many images of happy represent inundation itself, which you remember was the flooding of the soil on the banks along the Nile. In pharaonic times, happy is normally represented male-aligned, but also androgynously, being a, quote, stout man with female breasts, giving him a duality of sorts. That duality plays out in his gender presentation and control of both fertility and drought. In Seti I's tomb, there are multiple other facets that show the phenomenon of dual conception. For example, we have the North and South River Valleys, and familiar double tomb inscriptions of the god having a papyrus plant in one hand and a lotus plant in the other. So, I know what you're thinking. Ruby, what does this stuff mean? Okay, so the North, or Lower Egypt, is the delta that diverges into several channels until it dumps into the ocean symbolized by papyrus. The south, or upper Egypt, is the portion upriver from the delta symbolized by the lotus flower. The unity of the papyrus and lotus flowers showed the Nile's connection between both upper and lower Egypt, again ultimately showing Happy's dual power. We will soon touch on how these religious beliefs bleed into other periods, 
using aspects of these ideologies to increase economic endeavors as well as change religious beliefs. For now, let's move on. There is so much to explore concerning social organization and trade in ancient Egypt through most of the pharaonic periods. What did they trade? How were they organized socially and politically? A great example to talk about is Memphis. Memphis was the first capital city of Lower Egypt and was the product of 20 different dynasties. As we discussed with Amir in the first section, the Nile River shaped the organization and content of early settlement and soon-to-be-built villages or cities. With the harnessing of the Nile River's power, civilizations were able to have a surplus of food, which enabled ancient Egypt to have state administration, division of labor, and early specialized jobs like merchants. Division of labor did change throughout dynasties, but the city expanded regardless of specialty. For example, centralization and city building only expanded as the pyramid builders grew the city to accommodate their craftsmen and laborers, even though they were notoriously not great city builders. On top of those jobs rested the civil servants, priests, nobles, bureaucrats, and eventually the king or pharaoh. This political organization was created for the king to conduct duties and ceremonies showing he was a divine being, linked to both the godly and human worlds. This religiousness in the higher levels of society provided more money and resources to be allocated to architecture, including tombs, temples, and pyramids. This was the beginning of commercialization in Egypt, because soon temples would serve to not only be a religious purpose, but also a center of economic power. So what can we take away from all of this? We have to learn this information first to be able to analyze how it changed our perception of Egyptian society later, but we can also use this information to learn how ancient Egyptians themselves learned to adapt and control efficient agricultural, religious, and political systems in their own right, without much outside influence. That is, until the influence of Ptolemy and Rome. Alright, let's talk about the Greco-Roman period, spanning about 900 years in Egypt. Greece influenced and inhabited Egypt first for about 300 years, and Roman control lasted another 600 years or so after that, making Greco-Roman control over Egypt span from about 330 BC to 630 CE. Remember, we are thinking about how new influences such as the Greeks and Romans on the use of symbols to commercialize ancient Egypt. Ptolemy II is credited with many achievements and interests such as the Library of Alexandria, foreign policy, and agricultural expansion. He is a large reason why ancient Egyptian or pharaonic culture bled into his time period so much, depicting him as a religious elite as well as an administrative leader. As I take you through these 900 years, Think about how ancient Egyptian values were changed and depicted, and how that changed how you might see Egypt today. Before the Greeks arrived around 330 BCE, the Egyptians were largely left to themselves to manage the Nile. Then the Greeks came into Egypt and centralized the government, and therefore agricultural systems, to feed their empire. The biggest difference was, 
Egypt became part of Greece, and the leaders became more concerned with having stricter control over production, so they were able to use both Egypt's fertile soil and large labor force. The Fayum, an oasis region of Egypt known for its very lush agricultural land, was actually most prominent in the Middle Kingdom, or 1975 BC to 1640 BC, but was settled in and terraformed by the Greeks during the Ptolemaic period. As time moved on, ancient Egyptian irrigation systems inspired Greco-Roman canals and hydraulics. The calendar and seasons were also changed to a dual calendar system, including Julian months and more patterns to follow because now they were solely using this system to create revenue for their empires. This is important because the agricultural systems were now being used to create coinage, along with a stabilized economic production system, ultimately giving leaders more economic and therefore political power. Amir, can you jump in here and give us some crops that emerged in this period? How about from other places or times? So this is very important. The, uh, uh, we have uh, mainly the wheat and barley and linen. And uh, here I found also that while the plants were still in use, especially palm, you, they get two kinds of fruits from them, uh, dates, and another fruit called don. And this palm tree is only specific to the south of Egypt. And it is marked by having two heads, like you know the regular date palm has one head on the top, no, this has like one trunk and then the trunk becomes two trunks and then two heads of a palm. I've never seen this in the north and actually not known anywhere out of the Nile, Egypt, uh, Nile River. Uh, it is native also to Sudan. So this wild plants continued because they have uh, multiple uses like from spices to juices to um, uh, to even um, uh, medicinal applications. Okay, so moving on into uh, more recent periods, like the Ptolemaic period, what uh, other crops do we see being introduced? We find introduction of pomegranate coming from East Mediterranean. I found introduction um, of juniper berries. It was my first time to discover it and uh, identify this species. And during the quarantine for coronavirus, I made my own hand sanitizer out of it. Uh, just added a percentage of alcohol and I crushed it and I made it like sanitizer. That's so cool. That's how you do it, guys. Okay, so what about the agricultural systems themselves? Colin Adams, a professor of mathematics with an interest in Roman Egypt transportation, also says there were lots of exploitations and failures during this time. Workers were subjected to years of compulsory labor. There was redistribution of wealth to the wealthy, and then there ended up being future hindrances in agricultural production due to poor management. Because of this negligence to handle irrigation, many of these Roman canals that came in the latter part of the rule of Greco-Rome failed in production and disrepair. During this time, there were additional efforts to monopolize industries outside of Egypt for additional revenue. The desperation to exploit the people, land, and symbols of ancient Egypt was just the start of cultural appropriation. Above all, this is evidence that the settlers of Greco-Roman Fayum 
believed economy and agricultural processes were more of a major concern of the state, also suggesting the purpose and therefore perception of the Nile River had changed into more of a tool. We will later talk about this tool and how it concerns socio-political movements as well. Things were quick to change throughout this period, but Egyptologists are quick to study these fluctuations and apply them to this growing notion of commercialization. Cultural appropriation is essentially the adoption of culture, usually a more dominant culture taking from the less dominant one to benefit off of it. Recall from about 30 seconds ago when I told you about the people, land, and symbols that were being appropriated for economic use? This is exactly cultural appropriation. And it definitely goes hand in hand with commercialization. This is the management and selling of a product for financial gain. As you recall, traditional ancient Egyptian images of happy are predominantly drawn as a male character. But as we move further into the Greco-Roman period, we see more of his sexual and therefore cultural duality, like we saw in the tomb at Seti. In Greek-style pictures, Happy is seen associated with a female, who first appeared on Alexandrian coinage. The introduction of the coin and this image widely normalized female-aligned gods into Greco-Roman period cultural belief. This goddess was called Euthenia, representing abundance and wealth. This fit with Greco-Roman attitudes of making revenue from agriculture, as well as just having cultural power over native Egyptians. So, Amir, can you tell us a little bit about the changes and expansions that happened throughout this period when it came to culture? They expanded and exploited on creating more irrigation systems, cutting more channels and canals, and uh, developed agriculture system in the oasis also, especially the oasis of Fayum, so where the Nile branches out naturally and and pours, instead of pouring in the Mediterranean, it pours into a lake, uh, nowadays called uh, Lake Karun or Lake Fayum. And UCLA has uh, this project working on the Greco-Roman history of agriculture and agriculture exploitation in Fayum. Thanks, Amir. Great input. And we can actually see this with the Harris Magical Papyrus. This shows evidence of Egyptian-inspired stories rewritten with Greek gods' names in the same context. Also, Egyptian religious beliefs that rivers had their own demons also inspired Greco-Roman nymphs, or water spirits of the Nile River. It is generally known that these two ideologies, Ptolemaic and Egyptian, were pretty syncretized at the time. So what? Now we know the influences of monotheistic religions show both change in actual religious belief in Egypt and a change that also encouraged new economic exploitation of those beliefs over time. We must stop perceiving Egyptian culture through a lens of ethnocentrism and economic profit. Well, what is ethnocentrism, Ruby? Ethnocentrism is the idea that people see other cultures according to preconceptions originating in the standards of their own culture. This is seen in Greek and Roman Egypt, possibly because there is an increase in aestheticism, or a beauty contest, and even a sense of notoriety, like I'm better than you because I use the image of happy on my empire's coins. When we talk about the economy, 
we have to talk about the government and organization of Greco-Roman Egypt. The introduction of early Ptolemaic administrative districts called Sepat led to the operation of a government that oversaw gnomes, which were basically smaller versions of the government. This caused some internal conflict, eventually leading to decentralization of power in this period of Egypt. Nonetheless, these cities were a huge center for trade and communication between other cities and empires. The river flow soon became the basis of taxation and government income in ancient Egypt. This growth continued on through the Greco-Roman period, when more political organization grew the economy and stabilized settlement patterns. Unfortunately, there were uprisings under Ptolemaic rule, and according to many scholars, they were caused by factors like ethnicity, nationalism, poor economy, and Nile floods. Damn you, happy. As you might remember, one of Ptolemy II's goals was to intensify crop production and work on the water system, transforming the Fayum into a fertile plain. However, with revolts and resentful attitudes, indigenous Egyptians looked at the Greeks as invaders, and it took decades for Egyptians to accept this new power structure. An artificial Macedonia was created, and introduced the system of nomarchies, just as it had before. Both private and public landholds earned higher incomes, but the land was still residentially divided between Egyptians and Greeks. Trade under Roman rule provided a short but sweet production of luxury goods, but the government continued taxation and privatization of land. Eventually, the Roman Fayum faded away. So what's the big idea with this? There is obviously a power struggle here between a dominant and subordinate culture, and as we discussed previously, this struggle ends in appropriation for the benefit of the larger culture. Now that empires see the benefits of commercializing, Egypt starts to be perceived in an Orientalist perspective, being described as interesting or mystic, and giving false worth to the products. Now that's business. Do you see it now? Okay. So there was a lot of change through the entire Greco-Roman period, and I have noticed many ideologies that completely changed my own personal idea of how I see Egypt already. But we conquered some big points, and I want to chill for a second before we dive into modern Egyptian systems that evolved through the mechanisms of technology, ethnocentrism, and foreign affairs. So you want to know how Egypt ends up? Okay, okay. Starting as early as 1869, tours of Egypt and the quote-unquote Holy Land were given on steamboats up and down the river. John Cook, the man who gave these tours, had previously scouted the transatlantic market before. This travel through the river created revenue and encouraged travel, trade, and business to places many people had never been before. Oh, sorry, Cook called it the Holy Land? Ah yes, Orientalism. This is important to acknowledge. You recall the definition of Orientalism and the harmful Eastern stereotypes it perpetuates. This is a prime example of recognizing culture that is different and commercializing it for revenue. This is exploitation, and we can see in Cook's case, it was his boat. Said was really onto something in 1978. Finally, as we move into more recent times, there are a few dams. The High Aswan Dam is located in Aswan, Egypt, 
and was built across the Nile River between 1960 and 1970, just before Said wrote Orientalism. It was mainly built to control flooding, and early on in the plans and pre-builds for the dam, engineers had found a way the dam could produce power. This water control and hydroelectric power is used to help increase the productivity and agricultural production of modern Egypt. Of course, there is political worry about the ecological effects of the dam. Amir, can you please tell us about your own research on this subject? Modern crops dating to after the high dam time period, I found a huge drop in the fertility of the soil, and this is a striking first-hand deep time to the anthropogenic impact of the dams on changing the ecology, the water system, and the fertility of the soil along the Nile River uh, countries, not just in Egypt. So uh, uh, now there is political committees say, oh, we want to evaluate the damage of the dam. And in Ethiopia, they argue that we need to make a scientific committee to, to argue for uh, the, the, if they say there is environmental impact, we will stop the project, allegedly. Uh, but uh, there is no evidence that the dam has ecological impact. This is very interesting and also very important because the Aswan Dam is the most advanced technology for the use of agriculture along the Egyptian Nile River today. Comparing now to way back then in pharaonic times, it is obviously a huge change from the wooden machines or old outdated agricultural calendars because irrigation is now completely regulated and controlled. The Nile has always been known as a place of life, but now we are able to see an increase in the means of productivity and therefore revenue, like what we saw with the surplus crops and the steamboat rides. All of that leads up to what we know now, which is a highly efficient, renewable power source and the agricultural benefit of being a dam. Egypt. Well, let's move back a little. Egypt moved into a post-colonial era in the mid-20th century with the help of Nasser, and the Suez Canal was freed from Western rule, and the British were finally pushed out of Egypt. This was the start of the Egyptian Revolution, when cultural and nationalistic ideologies started to flood Egypt. A new Egypt was on the rise, liberated from Western Egypt to look for a more self-determining and nationalistic view to define what it meant to be a powerful Arab state. Nasser, the leader of Egypt during the building of the Aswan Dam, wanted to move fast and engage in modernization the same way empires did, not so much thinking about the ramifications of quick cultural change toward Western ideals. This soon was taken over by a supremacist-like ideology that had blatant disregard for people's separation from the Nile River and the water that flooded Nubian and Egyptian temples, churches, mosques, and homes. Affecting many Nubian communities, there was noticeably less traditional family structure, and the language was dying. There was a growing poverty rate, which prompted a loss of so much ancient art and literature, with no regard due to the Aswan Dam's creation. Because of this destruction, the Egyptian government had sadly self-imposed damage to their own culture, 
as well as destroyed many parts of Nubian culture just to control water and create power. Either way, someone will argue that the dam helped or didn't, but there is an inexplicable truth when we cross the line into foreign relations. Before we get very modern, let's talk a little bit about Muhammad Ali and cotton with Amir. Muhammad Ali is one, uh, he's native to Albania and then came right after the political vacuum when the French colonialism left Egypt and he became the ruler of Egypt under the Turkish Empire and then he announced his independence from Turkish Empire and made Egypt his own center of an empire. And he made a lot of changes uh, in the agriculture system in Egypt. And what is never got published and never got studied is that Muhammad Ali, even before British colonialism, introduced cotton and some colonial crops, uh, even from the Americas, the plants like tobacco that the British got from the Americas to Europe. He introduced them to Egypt before the British colonialism come to Egypt. And he would uh, help the British colonialism in the invasion of the new lands, uh, new world, with troops from Egypt. The cotton as a, as, as a cash crop dropped uh, under modern capitalism system. Uh, but at the same time, we still have this tobacco industry in Egypt. Uh, again, the native name or the original name was Eastern Company. Uh, this is how the British called it, and under nationalism we called it Kripata. <laughs> so it still continues. This is how we internalize colonialism under modern times, and we don't we forget that this is from colonial history. Exactly. Moving forward into the modern period, the Council on Foreign Relations wrote the Nile Waters Agreement which looked to promote understanding of international relations and foreign policy concerning the Nile's water usage and allocation to countries. The proposition and conversations of splitting up water took place between the broad years of 1896 and 1929, with the negotiation that Egypt remains the main owner of the Nile. Egypt's recognition as a sovereign state and their push towards freedom, as we discussed earlier, pushed further ideals of Egyptian nationalism. The negotiation of the Aswan Dam began when the Low Dam, built in 1902, was overthrown. Egyptians at first weren't interested, but eventually wanted the water to be stored in Egypt for political reasons. The United States and the Soviet Union both wanted to help develop the dam, but it started to get complicated during the Cold War and growing intra-Arab tensions. At this point, it was Egypt's turn to engage in an alliance that was powerful and could help them become the sovereign state that they originally fought for. As you recall, Nasser claimed to lead Egypt in its newfound nationalism, but realized he couldn't unless he grew his military. Eventually, with the help of the United States, Britain, and the USSR, $70 million in arms were exchanged for Egyptian grain and cotton to help further the construction of the Aswan Dam. However, as both deals were taken from the US and Britain and the Soviet Union, the US and Britain withdrew their funds, and the Soviets gave them even more money to build the dam. 
Both the Soviets and Egyptians provided engineers to work on the plans for the dam, threatening to submerge several historical sites. But the Soviets helped with a rescue mission as well. Even today, there is an Arab-Soviet friendship memorial commemorating the Aswan Dam build completion. When it comes down to it, these foreign relations were exactly what Egypt needed to be freed. And we see that change stands out in bold when you look back in time. While many people might not have known about this part of Egypt's history, it is important information to talk about to understand why we see Egypt in a way that does not reflect its true identity. So what did we learn today? Let's look back. We knocked out ancient Egypt. We talked about their irrigation systems. Happy and civilization building. Okay, how about Greco-Roman times? We have more irrigation advancements and economic growth. Do you remember there were highly organized miniature government districts? Hold on, unfortunately, these times heavily influenced how Westerners see in an Orientalist perspective. Ouch. In the modern times, there are even more commercialized and globalized forms of revenue along the Nile with transportation, business, and trade. Destructions of cultural material belonging to both Egypt and Nubia. Okay, that one just hurt. As well as the introduction to new nationalist ideologies prove Egyptian liberation. Last, but not even close to least, we recognized foreign relations with the Soviet Union tremendously helped Egypt in becoming a globally recognized sovereign nation, as well as helping with the building of their modern irrigation and power system, the Aswan Dam. Woohoo! Why did we learn this? We, Westerners, are blinded by the glorification and mysticism of ancient Egypt. We are fed stories like Arabian Nights and Aladdin, forgetting that we are only being exposed to stereotypes and that we will rarely forget them even if we are conscious enough. To see both sides of a historically rich place, you must study many aspects over many time periods to see what has changed and how it can be improved upon or kept up. Well, that is all for today, folks. Make sure to watch all the other Now Is Then episodes by Daniel, Gabby, Isabel, Sam, and Sophia. Very special thanks to Robin Price, our wonderful and insanely smart graduate instructor for this seminar. Also thank you to Deidre Whitmore for tips on recording podcasts, Martin Brennan for teaching us about copyright, and Simon Lee, Jet Jacobs, and Catherine Capsidelis for giving us research resources. This was Ruby Prosser. And thank you for listening to Journey Down the Nile.